Mountain believes every brand should be on TV, regardless of budget or size. That's why their self-serve performance TV platform takes the difficulty and expense out of connected TV advertising. With Performance TV, you get access to tens of thousands of audience segments so you can always find your target customer. Mountain serves your ads exclusively on premium streaming networks to elevate your brand profile and auto-optimizes your campaigns thousands of times a day to ensure you're always at peak performance. Visit Mountain.com to learn more. Welcome to Great Minds to this very special in-person record with a longtime dear, dear friend. We're going to go back, Nicola, and we're going to track our history going back to Karmarama days and a lot more. But we are thrilled to have the VP of the Global Business Group for Meta, Nicola Mendelssohn. So a heartfelt welcome. Oh, my Lord, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here with you in New York today. Yes, uh, we have a genuine uh, lady here in Lady Mendelssohn, so uh, a thrill to do this. So, Nicola, you started off at one of the great shops that has been an incredible farm system of talent in our group, and uh, we love them dearly to this day, and that's BBH. And I'd love to start our conversation by going back to early reflections, I guess the early 90s, and your time uh, working for that legendary shop. Do you know, when you, when you put it like that, I pinch myself how unbelievably blessed and lucky I was back in 92 to start my career in advertising, working for John Bartle, Nigel Bogle, and John Hegarty, and being, I actually sat outside their office, um, Bogle and Bartle's office for 10 years, and just learning almost by osmosis from three of the greatest practitioners in our industry was an absolute privilege. And the, and the power of creativity was instilled in me from a very, very young age. And the ability to do extraordinary things from a marketing perspective, to launch whole new sectors and industries through imagination and through creativity, well, you know, I couldn't have dreamt looking back of a better start to my career. So that gives you a great start, a great foundation. Uh, but you also have, and I've been lucky enough, I know your brother, I've met your mom. There's a real entrepreneurial spirit that is part of who you are. Could we talk about where that comes from? And did you work when you were a teenager? You know, I'd love to talk about where that entrepreneurial fire comes from. Yeah, it's true, Matt. You know all the members of my family. You've met them all in various guises uh, over the years, including my parents. But I think it goes back to, um, to family. So much of who anybody is goes back to family. And my family were all grafters. They were hardworking people. My parents, um, kosher caterers, my gr and worked together. My grandparents um, had a haberdashery shop, worked together. And so for a, almost as long as I can remember, I was always working, whether it was in the haberdashery, counting buttons and putting things in, tying ribbons up. It was just instilled in me from a, from a very young age. And that blend of work and family and life was just present as far back as I can remember. And I had so many jobs, um, you know, through, through my teen years. Uh, you know, I worked uh, in, in sales in a department store. Uh, but mainly I was working with my parents doing, um, you know, 
weddings and bar mitzvahs at the weekend, waitressing, leading a team of waiters. Um, so yeah, I've always I've always worked, and I think it was instilled in me from a very young age. You know that get up and go, you can achieve anything. You know, build trust in yourself, have those credentials to be able to to go out and do anything. And it's probably the reason that I was so attracted to new business early in my career. Right. I, in my own mind, attribute whatever modest degree of success I've had in large part to those jobs that I had as a kid. And I think you learn so much and lament so many teenage kids today. You know, a lot of jobs that were kid jobs that we did are now adult jobs and are gone completely for young people. But I don't know that young people work the same way that we did doing those long shifts and, and hard hours today as much. Well, I, I, don't, I can't speak for all kids. I certainly it's something we instilled in our children and all, and all four of our children um, actually worked as, uh, as waiting staff. And I think that I think that's really important because, you know, you get to meet so many different types of people. You get to really understand that power of physical work yeah. and that hard graft. But also, you know, if you're running a team that that's uh, on a waiting and doing tables and actually start to learn leadership skills. So I think that was important uh, when I look back. But I think also the role that I had in my youth organizations and the leadership roles that I have from a very young age, 15, 16, 17, you know, running big weekend activities away, organizing mini conferences for kids that were 12, 13, 14, and I was kind of 15, 16. I think some of those skills that I learned there have really helped me to be the, the leader that I am today. Yeah, very well said. And I think, you know, at, at its heart, Meta is about creating connection. And to me, those early years working as a teenager, when you learn how to look people in the eye and create that human connection. And I think that's part of uh, uh, the foundation. I think we're sort of uh, aligned on that. So let's go back to you and uh, and your your trajectory. At a very young age, you leave BH, BBH, and you end up in a very senior role at another great shop, Gray, uh, rising up the ladder pretty quick. You were probably barely 30, if 30, uh, and you were all the way at the top there. Talk about that journey from BBH. I imagine it was tough to leave. You were there a long period of time but a great gig at Gray. Yeah, so I, I was um, headhunted to join a change management leadership team at, at Gray. And I said, no, here I was at BBH, you know, the best agency on the planet, in my opinion, doing the most extraordinary work. So I said, no. And then it was positioned to me, why, why wouldn't you take a leap? Why wouldn't you try and learn something different and actually go out on your own? And I thought, well, that, that was a really interesting way of thinking about the challenge. And also from a growth perspective, what more was I going to learn? And I remember looking up at BBH thinking, all these extraordinary leaders, I think they're always going to be my extraordinary leaders here. So however senior I become, I'll still be looking up at, at the same people. And so, it, yeah, it was kind of scary. It was very emotional. I did a lot of crying the day I left. I'd worked with these guys since, you know, I was a child in many ways. And they'd see me get married. They'd see me have three of my four children. And so, yeah, I took a bet on myself and went and joined Gray. And that was an extraordinary experience as well in, in very different ways. Yeah, I was on yesterday with a friend at Ogilvy. We're bringing our, our pal Rory Sutherland, who we love, to Africa uh, for Advertising Week in February. And we were lamenting the loss of so many of the great creative shops that have disappeared over the years. Uh, Ogilvy is now in what was Gray's office down uh, by Madison Square Park. But, you know, names like JWT, you know, many others have disappeared. Reflecting on the sort of the flow of the creative part 
of our world. Do you think that it could have gone a different way? And I'll also jump to the separation of creative and media back when. So we'll mix up a few subjects into one little jambalaya pot here. But you have real perspective on all that. Yeah, but I think, you know, the names are one things and we can lament the past and the names that, that have gone. But actually at the heart of the industry has always been creativity. It always has been changed. There has always been consolidation as different eras of, you know, advertising. And I love the history of advertising, you know, when the different technologies came in. And so you, you originally had the, the print and the radio agencies and TV was a big disruptor. And then, you know, digital's been a big disruptor. But at the heart of it, the, the, the people are the thing that make a big difference here. And the creativity still remains at the heart. And yes, we can think about, was it wrong to separate creative and media and should it be brought back together? Ultimately though, that I've always thought it's about putting the best people in the room, the creative, the digital, the media together. That's where the powerful ideas came from. And I, you know, I was lucky enough to start in the industry at a time when everything was together. I saw it fragment out. I've seen a lot of it come back together. And I do think there is something that when you get the right people in the room, that's where interesting things happen. Yeah, no, very well said. I think I'm, I'm just sentimental. Like I, where our office is here, where we're recording today, right by Madison Square Garden, right around us. I remember as a kid, stores like Gimbal's and others that are now gone. And I think I probably over-index in my mind those memories but other things and new things have emerged yeah. just as you said and i'm new to this city and i just see vibrancy and excitement and innovation that yeah. has always been at the heart of new york yeah people love, it's very popular to kick new york and uh there is an energy here that you feel totally. and a resilience to new york very much like london mm. you know you can knock us down a little bit or wobble us but we're not going to stay down on the canvas here in new york i agree all right so let's uh let's jump to where we met which is a shop that you owned, Karmarama. Fantastic, creative uh, place, great people. You very warmly greeted me when we first met, I think it was on Belgravia Square at the IPA, as you were transitioning out as president of the IPA, I think handing it over to Ian, as I recall. And um, I asked you for some help. You said, come and see me in, where was it, Farringdon? That's and, right. uh, and Karmarama was our first creative shop when we launched Advertising Week Europe in 2013. Talk about the origin story of Karmarama. Yeah, so I, there I was at Gray, and I'd been at Gray five years, and uh, a guy called Ben Bilbo called me and said, could we have a coffee? And I sort of knew Ben by reputation. Uh, Karmarama was a, was a very small agency. They would, you know, at the time would have described it as a lifestyle business, had about 10 people. But they had unbelievable creative credentials. So I went to have a cup of coffee with Ben because I've always done that. You know, if, you know, if interesting people give you a call and say you want to meet, it's like, yeah, why wouldn't you? Because that's when interesting things happen. Anyway, I got in there and he was there with Sid and Dave, the other two founders. And I was like, what is this? And they said, no, this is a job interview. I was like, I thought this was a cup of coffee. They said, no, this is a job interview. We want you to be our fourth partner and we want to build the business, etc. So... I was totally seduced by the work. I thought the work had always been, um, you know, I'd always been a huge fan of the work that they had done. But together, over that next period, those five years, the, the four of us built Karmarama into being the largest independent 
um, business uh, in the UK, creative business, but it was um, it was a full service business with digital um, at the heart. So that was one thing that happened. And then the second thing that happened when you and I came together was that I had been asked to be the first woman to head up the uh, the trade body for agencies, the IPA in the UK. So that was something that I took on. It's a two-year post. And my whole vision at that time was that the UK would be the leading uh, digital country when it came to creativity and advertising. And that's where you and I then uh, then came together when you were looking to okay, launch. So I, I associated you with the beginning of Karmarama, but it was there a little bit before you, but only 10 people. Yeah, it was very small. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and uh, tremendous tenure at the IPA. And I think Paul Baines Fair continues to do a brilliant job leading the day-to-day on issues, including uh, gender equality. I think they've got a lot of dynamic female leaders there. But let's talk about that uh, creativity and the UK's unique position in the world globally in creativity. And it's one of the things that we talked about when we first met. Somebody uh, around, around that table in Belgravia Square asked me, well, why are you coming here? And the answer was and remains that the UK over-indexes in creative industry, that you may weigh what a welterweight weighs, I think it's about 147 pounds, uh, but you punch like a heavyweight in global creative industry. And you've been a leader not only within our sector, but more broadly for the country, uh, putting forth that creative agenda, that creative firepower the UK has. Talk about that unique asset that uh, really is special uh, as it relates to your native land. Yeah, so from at the same time I was doing the, the IPA role, I was also asked to chair the government's Creative Industries Council. And it was something that I did for seven years uh, through multiple successive different governments at that time uh, and different ministers and uh, heads of, uh, of that division. And it really gave me a new lens on what made the UK special when it came to the creative industries. And in many ways, I think it's um, the unique thing there is the it's the ecosystem. It's the coming together in a very small place of so many different aspects of creative life, whether it's fashion, whether it's film, design, architecture, you know, film, TV, production, advertising, kind of tech, all coming together, gaming in one very small place. Yes, there's lots of great offshoots in different parts of the country, but that that melting pot in London and those people all hanging out in in the same bars, restaurants, you know, pubs, infusing each other, I think that's the thing that makes London pretty unique and pretty special. And I remember leading lots of different delegations that would come over from different countries in order to understand that secret source, but... It's really something that's developed over hundreds of years. And I think it's something that's pretty similar here in New York. And I think it's why people from New York and London feel very comfortable in each other's cities uh, is because that ecosystem is pretty similar, but just even smaller and more concentrated in London. Yeah, very well said. I think New Yorkers absolutely love London and Londoners love New York. I do think the there's a little higher sense of community within the industry in the UK mm-hmm. relative to New York here. I think people are more head down, hard charging, eyes to the ground, moving forward. We don't have some of the things that you have, like the 30 Club and some of the other Claridge month. You know, there's a lot more of that. It's also much tradition. smaller. Yeah, it's a lot smaller, as, you know, from yeah. the actual size of the industry as well. And yes, uh, you know, as you would expect from the United Kingdom, there's a lot of traditions Yes. Uh, in terms of our clubs and our members and the different ways that we come together from a communal perspective as yeah. well. 
Yeah, I love that tradition. Though. I know you do, yeah, my I lord. I do. I do. I do indeed. Okay, so uh, your things are rolling along at Karmarama. You're growing. You're doing great work. Great people. I have fond memories not only of you but of Dave Bonaguidi, who was a key creative at that time. Uh, is he doing okay today, Dave? Uh, he is indeed. I love Dave. And uh, and then you get a phone call. Talk about that initial contact with Carolyn and the journey to what was then Facebook. Well, it's true to say that you had something to do with that. So maybe you should start the story of what happened. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. So uh, I will because you asked. We were I was having breakfast with Carolyn. She was in London at the time. And we got together for breakfast in Kensington. And she said, I'm looking to replace me. I want to go back to the United States and I need somebody senior to do this job here in EMEA. Do you know anyone? And it was an agenda-less breakfast, but you know, it just came up in the course of conversation. And I said, well, I know someone. I said, but she's the chair of her agency. I think she's really happy there. I think the agency's doing very well. And the specific words I remember were, I don't think you could get her. And I was talking about you. And Carolyn just took note. And um, bing, bang, boom, here we are. <laughs> so uh, that is how it started. I'm not a headhunter. Uh, but um, I just thought so highly of you uh, then and always have since we first met. And that greeting you gave me uh, in the IPA, Paul opened the door but there was something right there, and you and I did not know each other. But you got what we were trying to do immediately. And that reception, and I think that sort of set the tone for the room in general. And I am certain that all these years later here in 2022, almost 2023, that we would not be where we are without you. And we're now in Tokyo, and Meta's been with us in all of these markets all over the world as a key player. For APAC in Sydney, you have a tremendous team down there in LATAM, and I know you'll be with us when we launch in Johannesburg, and of course, here in New York for almost 20 years now. But you, you opened that door in a very unique way, and I think we're tied to each other in different ways uh, because of that initial meeting and the warm reception you gave me. So I'm, I'm eternally grateful to you. Oh, well, thank you. And before this turns into a love fest, I think what you have brought to the industry is something that I think the industry often lacks, which is a celebration and a confidence in terms of what the industry delivers. And I remember looking from afar in the UK at what... Adweek was in, in America and thinking we needed one of those. It's very easy to beat up the industry, but actually yeah. the industry needs a moment when it comes together and can celebrate, learn from one another, be inspired from one another. And I think that's what that's what Adweek creates and, and, and has given to, you know, to, to to the industry. And I think that's why it's important. So if it hadn't have been me, Matt, it would have been somebody well, else. I don't know. But <laughs> all right, we're gonna go back to you in a second, but just to finish that point, um, you know, one of my dear friends and right here on my coffee table is a book by Bud Greenspan. Bud was a legendary filmmaker and did all the official films for the Olympic Games going back to 1948, the first post-World War II games in London. And Bud would tell these incredible stories of triumph and often failure by athletes who train a lifetime for what can be 10 seconds. 
And the media would often criticize Bud and say, oh, Greenspan, you see everything through rose-colored glasses. And Bud would say, and I'm not demonizing the media, that's not what I'm saying at all, but Bud would say the media spends 90% of their time on the 10% that's bad. I spend 100% of my time on the 90% that's good. And at its heart, when Advertising Week is really humming along at its best, it makes people feel good about the business that they're in. And it doesn't mean we're not talking about difficult, challenging issues. We've had many challenging moments on our stage where we are confronting real challenges that our industry faces. So it's not that we are skirting over difficult or challenging subjects, but I think there's a great value in maybe making people feel good and making people smile. And I, I think we don't do enough of that. So, okay, back to you. So you, we now know how it started, but you get a call from Carolyn. Yeah, so I get a call from Carolyn. Actually, she invited me for breakfast as well. So we went, I'll never forget, we were in the Ivy, which is in many ways the worst place to go if you want to approach someone for a job because at that time, uh, every, you know, it was something that you would see everybody from the ad industry would, would be in there at the same time. And you know, as direct as Carolyn is, she literally came straight out and just went, I'm here to see if you, we didn't know each other, I'm here to see if you would like to be uh, the head of EMEA for, for Facebook as was back then. And I literally splurted out my drink because I wasn't expecting that. And I, I said to her, no, um, I'm, you know, I've got my, you know, an agency. I'm so proud of it. You know, we, we've got a few hundred people there now. We've hired, I've hired everyone. Like, no. She goes, think about it, think about it, come back to me. And actually at the time I was using Facebook, I loved Facebook. And I, I'll never forget, Campaign had done an article about people using Facebook and Rory Sutherland and I were both in this article and I think it cited that because I had 400 friends that was a huge amount you know now people have thousands right, of friends right. and all the rest of it's so different so I went home that night and I spoke to um, my husband John and he said are you sure I said what do you think and he said well what you like tech you've always enjoyed tech you've done a whole thing about you know, tech uh, and the IPA. You've led delegations out to those early days of the Silicon Valley tours. Are you sure? Why don't you just explore it a bit more? So I phoned, I gave it the overnight. I phoned about the next morning and I went, okay, um, maybe I was a little hasty. Let, let's have a chat. And she said, okay. So um, what began then as the process was uh, I had a whole series of interviews and then about, after about five or six interviews, I got told I was too late in the process. And she'd said that to me. I was, I was quite late in the process. And so I remember writing her a note where I said to her, you know, this feels like unfinished business, Carolyn. I've loved all the conversations. And I have to tell you, by now my head was really turned and I felt gutted that this wasn't going to be a thing. And then about a month or two later, I got another call back to go, actually, we want you to come in. We want you to meet the, the ex-co. We need you to fly to you know, Silicon Valley tomorrow. I was like, I can't. <laughs> I actually just can't up and go. And so backwards and forwards, a few deliberations. And in the end, I, you know, I had, I flew there. I had a whole series of interviews over a day. And then they, uh, they offered me a job. Fantastic story. And it's been how many years now? It's coming up for 10 next year. 10 yeah. years. So you mentioned John, uh, your husband, who I'm lucky enough to know also, such a lovely guy. And uh, I want to digress for a moment. In my office here is a signed poster, a uh, movie poster from the original Godfather. And you mentioned that that plays a particular interesting role for you and John. W what, what were you t telling me there? 
So that goes back to when I was 18. I was all involved in student politics. And John was also very involved in student politics. We'd both gone to the same university. He's a bit older, five years older than me. And so we came together at the National Union of Students annual convention. And um, he was carrying around a copy of The Godfather. And I said to him, I was an English student at the time at university. And I said to him, I've never read uh, that book. And so he lent me this well-thumbed through copy. And so I took the book away. It was over the, uh, the winter holidays. And being the English student that I was, you know, I annotated the book and I read that and I sent him a, a kind of a bit of an essay back going, my thoughts on The Godfather. And I didn't know he was obsessed with this book at that time. And then I think it kind of one thing led to another and he fast became my boyfriend. And then, um, yeah, so I've been with John since I was uh, 18. Great. And we cite The Godfather. It's like an important thing well, uh, in I our relationship. All those lessons. The bi- there are more business lessons oh, in that movie than everything else put together. That's true. And there's a book on that, The Business Lessons of The Godfather. <laughs> yeah. And, and endlessly uh, interesting. 50 years, the first Indeed. film. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to uh, uh, the task at hand here. You join a company which is flying high. And well, pers- actually, it wasn't. Okay. In 2013, we were just post the IPO. It hadn't gone so well, and people had started to really doubt the company, to say this was a, an application that was built for desktop, that wasn't fit for mobile, and didn't have a mobile strategy. The shares were really very low at the time, and it was like the articles were written. It's the end of days for, for Facebook. But I thought there was something here interesting. And even at that time, there were you know, hundreds of millions of people being connected. I thought this was interesting and, and exciting. And so I went all in and you know, was very energized from day one. Okay, so let me, let me reframe the question then because I'm glad you smacked me down a little bit there. <laughs> uh, you know, our perspective on, on Facebook is a little different. Um, we started going out there in about 2005. We launched in 2004. And I remember going to the first office that I went and visited was above a storefront in Palo Alto. And you went up a flight of stairs like you would in New York City, you know, above any corner bodega. And that was the whole thing. And we watched it grow. But talk about that company that you joined there in a little more detail because I forgot that the IPO did not go very well. I remember that there was some controversy between NASDAQ and the NYSC and I think you ended up on NASDAQ and and it didn't go very well. So yeah, it was as much about not having a, a mobile strategy and that was one of, from a very early time of joining the company. I saw the extraordinary vision of Mark and his ability to pivot and move a company, which is not an easy thing to do, right? To go, this is where we were. Now we need to focus on mobile. And that included, you know, having to get the engineers to kind of code in a different way and, and come up with a whole different product. But I think in many ways that was the, the, the unlocking of the company because then we, the ability to move people quickly, to paint a vision and for people to follow, I think has been very important with the multiple pivots that we've had as a company um, in, in the last decade. So it was, I found that very energizing and, uh, to, you know, to see how that, how that all happened. And then at the similar time, we just acquired uh, Instagram. And, you know, Instagram at the time was very small. It was right. very small. Right. But again, Mark saw a vision in terms of how people were going to share things in a different way, how people were going to move from words to pictures and ultimately to, to video and many other things from here on. Right. And the WhatsApp was a few years after that? That's correct, yeah. Right. Okay. We're going to, we're going to dig into all that. So it's about 10 years. What 
would be your sort of, okay, you're now delivering your epitaph on your tenure at Meta, which we are many years away from. But if you would think about those 10 years, what comes to mind? What's a, a special memory, a particular project or client that really remember, preferably from the early days, but you pick any way you want to go? When you ask that question, the thing that comes to mind is all the extraordinary people that we've hired. I mean, each and every one of them either has been or could be a CEO. You know, so many of my leadership team and the people that I work closest with of, of so many different organizations, but they believe in the mission, they believe in the purpose, and they believe in the creation of a culture at our company that is, is pretty special and always has been, that brings the whole person to to do the very best jobs of their careers. So actually, that is what I hope my, my epitaph will be. And I hope it's a very long time in the exactly, future. Exactly, exactly. Which is that the people that, came, that we together created a, an environment where people could come be their whole selves and do the very best work of their careers. Yeah, well, that's why you as a company from the outside looking in have been and continue to be successful because of the leaders and the people mm. and people like Marnie and others who have been there for a long time. Nada, I thought way back when was a great hire. Um, talk about, and we'll put it two ways. You go from a relatively small shop, Karmarama, a couple hundred people at that time, up way up from 10 when you started, to now a, a company that's grown tremendously globally, but 2013 was a pretty big company. Talk about that growth and the juxtaposition of being in the UK, working for a US company, and now here you are in a different way, moving from London to New York, changing countries, if you will. Yeah, so so many questions in there, Matt. You know, actually, when I started in London, um, it was a pretty similar size to Comrade. It was a couple of hundred people. So it, the size thing was was one. You know, in those early years, we, we went around and we opened offices. I, you know, I remember vividly opening the office in, in Israel. I remember vividly opening our first office in, in Johannesburg where, you, you know, you're about to go and do and create an ad week there, which is, which is super exciting. So there were a lot of firsts in, the, in those early days. And then, you know, how blessed I feel to have had the opportunity, age 51, to come on now and move from running the EMEA business, but to taking on the global role. And with that, the whole adventure of moving to the States, you know, a place that I now know very well for the last decade of flying backwards and forwards between New York or California, um, you know, getting to know the people, getting to know the, the advertisers here. So it, it's, been a, it's been an extraordinary journey, an extraordinary journey, um, but one that, you know, just has a new chapter just kind of getting going now. Fantastic. And the depth of the relationships that you have with the brands on the client side in the agency world, you know, I thought it was a brilliant move when they elevated you because you have those. And while so much of our business is driven by things that we don't see underneath the hood of the digital engine, above that are the people and the relationships. And you have always been an extraordinary relationship person. I think I was thrilled that you came here to do this live today. It's very different than doing something on the screen. You can't truly look someone in the eye on the screen. Yeah, I, I agree with that. This, is, this has always been, well, it, it's an industry of both in many ways that, you know, I'm a people person like you are, relationships matter, but you equally have to have a product that works for, for people as well. And so, I think it's it's important to always to be listening intently in terms of what people are looking for and what advertisers are, are looking for and making sure that you know we're able as a company to be able to deliver those products 
in order to help you know the businesses to grow this has never been a very complicated industry right somebody has a business challenge or an opportunity that they want to see ignited and then it's about finding the the best way of targeting the people that matter wrapping it up in the best creativity and then finding the formats that can deliver the best return on on investment and i've always been as obsessed with the creative side of the industry as the effectiveness side of the industry right. and the more that the industry's done over the last 20 years to bring those two parts together i think has been important um for you know to able to assist marketers when they you know when they're in the boardroom when they're talking with their cfos in order to justify their spends that's great great stuff so let's talk a little bit about the mix of assets we've got the original if you will facebook Instagram, WhatsApp, Reels, an increasingly big part of, of the mix. Talk about the evolution of that product mix and your evolution going from EMEA to global. Yeah. So in many ways, the so I'll take the role first and then I'll take the products. In many ways, the role has many similarities. You know, it, it's to it's to meet with our with our partners, our advertisers, and to really listen. And to hear what you know, what are the things that are concerning them, and how we can help be the very best partners for growth, and that works whether you know you're having a conversation in Spain, whether you're having a conversation in Korea, or whether you're having a conversation here in the United States. That's at the heart, and then making sure that you know we're putting our best foot forward as a company to help those businesses to grow, to keep them educated on all of the new products, because there is one thing for sure: we don't stand still as a tech company. When I think through those really early original ad products that we have and the evolutions, it's extraordinary. And, you know, I think as an industry, we've all learned the lessons that you don't just take a TV ad anymore and plunk it onto a digital format. That doesn't work. And we've created this enormous smorgasbord of different canvas of different advertising products to really help address the, you know, the different needs of advertisers. So in terms of what's new and what's exciting me today, I think it's, it starts with artificial intelligence. It starts with AI. Because we've made as a company some really significant investments um, over this last period. And in fact, 82% of the investments that we're making in, in 23 are around you know, the, the core products, the family of apps and services, which is what we call Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and, and Messenger. And a lot of that investment is around AI. Now, why AI? It's about really automating the things that um, that people can do to actually free up time, but also to do things that people wouldn't be able to do. And this is incredibly exciting because it can do things like, well, we have a new product called uh, Advantage Plus. And Advantage Plus, or if I look at the creative side of that, on the shopping side, actually can automate 150 different creative solutions in one moment. And it can find new ways of targeting as well. There's a, there's a great example from Rolf's The, uh, the Women's Wear Shop. And through using ASC, which is what we call it, they, they'd always targeted women. And that makes sense, right? Target women for women's clothing. But actually, AI suggested, ASC suggested, why not target men? And maybe particularly men that are looking to buy for a, a gift for perhaps a wife or a child or a parent, a mother. And they saw extraordinary return on investment uh, and return on their ad spend as a result. So that's one thing I'm very excited about um, you know, the, the work that we're doing in AI and how we're going to increase that going forwards. You mentioned Reels. Reels is one of our fastest products we've ever seen, our short form video. We're seeing already that there are 140 billion Reels every single day between Facebook and Instagram. And a billion of those are being shared by people as well. 
And now, you know, we've recently started to monetize it and we already have a run rate of $3 billion. So if people are listening and they haven't tried it, either uploading from a personal perspective, but actually more importantly from an advertising perspective, then they definitely, definitely should um, because you're meeting people where they are. And of course, that's only one in many of our different video offerings that, that we have. But I'm most excited about the fact that we're, we're stealing share away from uh, uh, TikTok at the moment on that. So that's exciting. And then the final area that I'm, I'm feeling very bullish about is the whole area of messaging. So we have messaging on three of our apps. Um, we have WhatsApp, we have Messenger, and we have Instagram Direct. And we're seeing already now, I mean, there's billions of messages being sent between individuals, but also between people and businesses every day. And so we've got a number of different products here. We have um, Click2, uh, we call it, whereby you can literally open up a thread from, whether it's on Facebook and Instagram, go directly into uh, the messaging thread and then start and have a, a conversation. I was just in India few weeks back and I saw you know how they that country's really embracing this at scale social commerce social messaging and there's um, a product a company called Geomart which is an equivalent of uh, a grocery retailer you can go into whatsapp you go into your thread with geo and it opens up the 20 30,000 SKUs in the supermarket you can choose it all within whatsapp you can book your delivery you can pay for it all within whatsapp and then it tells you when the delivery slot now, this is so fantastic from a, a, from a consumer perspective, but also from, you know, from the app for Geomart as well, because they're, they're getting that a whole new way of being able to, uh, to market and to sell their product. So, and, and here in the U.S., I think we're a little behind on the opportunity around messaging, aren't we? Yeah, I would say so. But here's something that's really interesting is that um, America now is actually our fastest growing country when it comes to WhatsApp. So region. And so I, I think, you know, it's probably people like you travel a lot that, you know, using yeah. WhatsApp more and more and seeing the simplicity of, of it, of the use case. But yes, you're right. I mean, you know, when I travel around the world I, and especially in Asia and Latin America, the ease of which people are communicating with businesses, I think it's a huge opportunity for uh, for advertisers in the U.S. So you've always been a traveler and you're a media responsibility uh, certainly took you to a lot of the world, but now you have a true global remit. Is there a particular place or a part of the world when we look at where we want to go in the future? For Advertising Week, we're looking now at MENA and doing something in both Israel and the UAE back-to-back. -back. We'll continue to look at Southeast Asia, which I think is a very high-growth area, not just Singapore, but everything that's around Singapore. Where do you see the greatest growth opportunity for Meta? And is there a particular place that you really, I can't wait to get back there. It's really, I really love, like, and a place that we wouldn't expect, not, not London or New York or Paris or something like that. Yeah, well, you know me, I, I love travel. And um, this holiday, I, I will get to my 100th country. So I'm very excited uh, about that moment. Look, I think, you know, anybody that's studying what's going on from a, a global economic perspective at the moment, that growth is in Asia. At the moment, it's strong. You feel it, you know, very tangibly when you're meeting with business owners and business leaders there. When you're meeting with politicians there, you can feel it. Um, Korea was pretty exciting when I, I was recently there. They're full on and, you know, full on embracing the metaverse, full on embracing the opportunities, seeing that uh, across the board from lots of different advertisers in different verticals. So that's a place that we certainly go to think about, to, to learn 
I mentioned the countries from uh, a messaging perspective. Again, Asia, a lot going on in, in messaging. Brazil, different countries in Latin America. That's a good place to go and learn. And yes, I think the Middle East, I think you're right in terms of uh, the opportunities there. That's another innovative, exciting space, uh, especially thinking through you know, Israel, the, the tech opportunities that are there and the bringing together of the tech and creativity. Lots of places to, to go and learn. But you already, you already got those on your books and, and your Which we're, we're trying. And what's, if you could blink to any of those, I know you're about to go to your 100th country, but if you could blink like the old Americans, I don't know if you, did they have bewitched? I remember that remember program, Bewitch? yeah. So yeah. if you could blink your eyes and be yeah. anywhere, where would you be? Oh, um, just with my family. Doesn't matter where great we are. An- great answer. Okay. So um, you are also one of the great leaders in our industry. And I think the great people that recruited you way back when recognized those leadership skills at a very young age. What advice would you give to folks now who are leading big global organizations? There's a lot of headwinds in the economy, not just here, but globally. Certainly in America, a lot of political uncertainty. I was in Johannesburg a few weeks ago, and as a dinner conversation, we were talking about the stability of the democracy in South Africa relative to America, which is a surreal conversation. And uh, you know, there were a lot of votes around the dinner table that said South Africa, a new democracy, less than 30 years old, is now more stable than ours, which is uh, an incredible statement to even fathom. But what advice would you give to business leaders in our sector and beyond to combat these uncertain times? So I think think there's a few things that I think through here. I think it's still important for leaders to paint a vision of of where the company is going. I think it's important to be very clear especially in difficult moments. You know, you can't sugarcoat bad news. That's never going to happen. But I think if you're direct with people, um, somebody played back to me that actually clarity is kindness. I think there is also, it's not a failure to lead as a human, to be empathetic, to show vulnerabilities. That's something that, that I have done. But ultimately, to, to be there for people and to, um, to communicate. I think that's important too, that as you go through difficult moments, to make sure that you that you continue to talk through those and, and share with people as best you can. Well, that humanity is really, you know, at the center of you. And I see it in your family. You were kind enough to have Isla and I to your home for a, a Friday night Shabbat dinner. Uh, and that's just who you are. And I've seen that with an awful lot of the leaders uh, in the company overall over a very long period of time. And I think that's been a key driver in your growth is that notion of humanity and human connection, not just the digital connection. How are you doing on getting people uh, to come back to work and what's the feeling in the company overall of people? I hear there's a lot of buzz in the meta offices at Hudson Yards these days, at least three days a week. But talk about that culture as it evolves. Yeah, look, I think it is evolving. and. It's really busy in our offices. It feels very exciting um, and just very energizing. I just had a moment yesterday where I was walking upstairs and it was heaving. And I just thought, just take a moment and not take this for granted. Because we spent two years not being able to do this. And, there, and it is magical when people come together. That said, I also think that people's attitudes to the ways of working have changed. 
I we talked about that, you know, that I've traveled a lot. And so it was pretty common for people to see me, you know, doing video conferencing from various hotel bedrooms or, or around the world. And you can make that happen. So we see ourselves very much as a company in, in, in this period of learning. We called it a, a year of learning. Maybe it's going to be a couple of years of learning. The world was, of work was pretty much fixed for the last hundred years post the industrial revolution. We're not rushing to fix exactly what it should be. Some, some companies have said, we want everyone back five days a week or we're all remote. We're very much taking a more measured approach to test and learn and to understand where people are and what opportunities that we can offer for them. And it, and it goes back to creating environments where people can do the best work of their careers. For a lot of people, that's about being together, actually iterating together, working together, uh, collaborating together. For some, actually, they prefer to do that in a more remote way and some like a blend. So we're still working through it. Yeah, I, I think that notion of not a hard and fast rule, but really looking at you know the total picture. Um, we're, we're roughly three days a week uh, here now, and, and I think people are starting to really appreciate the value of being with their colleagues. Mm. I think we all sort of, not forgot it, but it got underplayed a little bit, and I think it's sort of settling in to a new place now. Yeah, I agree with that. And especially for people younger in Korea, that it became, um, you know, and I see that with my own kids as well. Like, what's the benefit of going in? Actually traveling into New York or traveling into London, these are expensive cities to commute into, to live in. And so, you know, the juice has got to be worth the squeeze. So when you come back into the office, and actually I do think people are starting to see the benefits, and especially younger on, which is that almost apprenticeship-like moment. You know, we started this conversation with me talking about sitting outside John and Nigel's office for all those years, I picked up so much. It wasn't about, you know, actually being formally trained. It was those little overheard moments, those little asks to do things. That's what you pick up. Yeah. Those sidebar conversations. You don't get that at the end of a video conference call. Right. The unplanned. Correct. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. And uh, I still am very much old school. And when folks are in the office, my door's open, I'll, you know, see Lance or I'll see Louise. And hey, I just thought of something, you know, and that can't happen, you know, in the digital screen scheduled environment. Great. So along your journey, uh, you are rolling along and you get some challenging health news and have to deal with something that uh, most people never even imagine. You deal with it, you tackle it, you conquer it, and you start a foundation to help others with follicular lymphoma. Can we go back to that initial time period when it first came up? How did you know that something was wrong? Were you not feeling well? Give us that story. Yeah, so... It's six years ago. Um, it's November, end of November, December 16. And I was totally well. I was flying all over the world and kind of, you know, doing the job that I do and I love and living a very rich, fulfilled life. And I, I didn't feel ill at all. I just had a tiny lump in my groin. And, um, you know, I happened to mention it to my girlfriend, who's a, a, a doctor. And she said, it's probably nothing. It'll probably go. Don't worry about it. If it's not gone in a month, let me know hadn't gone so I saw her and she said come and see me and so she put hands on me and because I know her well I saw in her eyes you know just past something and I went you don't like it do you and she said no so 
fast forward, within 10 days, I have this diagnosis of follicular lymphoma, which is an, a non-Hodgkin's blood cancer, which unfortunately is incurable. And so it, it's not like other cancers in that the language around cancer that we understand is that you sort of cut it out, you zap it, and then you beat it or you don't, right? This one is, they describe more like a chronic condition where the average person will have between six and eight flare-ups of it that then you need to treat with chemotherapy, immunotherapy. And if you're lucky, then, you know, it, you, you, it goes away again and then hopefully come, don't, takes a long time to come back. So I had treatment in a um, couple of years later because when you have something that's incurable, actually there is a benefit to doing something called watch and wait where they observe you and um, and when it grows to a point where they need to really, you know, it's inhibiting a, an organ or my, in my case it was compressing on my kidneys, then they need to take action otherwise you end up with kidney problems as well as, you know, the cancer issue. So I had chemotherapy in 2018 for six months and immunotherapy and, and thankfully at the end of it there was no evidence of disease which is a great result and I am so grateful. I was supposed to then do a two years um, maintenance therapy of immunotherapy, but unfortunately because of COVID, I had to stop that after 18 months. And so I didn't get that full treatment. So we'll never know what that impact will, will be on me. But um, even though they, there is no evidence of disease, it, it still exists on a, they can't measure it because we don't have the tools. Uh, it exists on a minimal level. And we don't know when it's gonna come back because it's a very underfunded rare cancer. And so that led me in 2019 um, to setting up the, the world's first foundation, first charity for follicular lymphoma. And I, at the time, went around all my mates in the industry to say, will you help? And you were one of those people that stood up and said, yeah, I'll help. And you were one of those people that said, let's dream big. Like, how can we really get that rocket ship up? Like, we all know all the rules that we've always learned about marketing a good campaign. You've got to send that rocket ship up high. And so thanks to you, we were able to, you know, we, I was grateful for the AND partnership created the most amazing creative work. We got a number of celebrities involved. And the thing was, when you have a cancer like this that you can't see, um, how do you depict it? And so through the AND partnership and also working with the extraordinary photographer Rankin, they came up with a device to make purple veins on people's faces to show, wouldn't it be interesting, if, what if my cancer looked like this, then you'd be able to give it a name and call it. It was very striking images. And obviously it ran digitally, but we also used um, print and we used posters. And thanks to you, Matt, we were able to be up in Times Square at the same time we were in Piccadilly Circus. And we were able to reach over 200 million people globally through the digital assets that we created and um, posters in the print as well. So. It was, a, it was a very, very humbling, emotional moment on the day of launch, standing there and seeing the posters kind of go up, seeing the digital work go, um, go live. And it's a very, the whole business of rare cancers, not a lot unless you're in that world is understood, but the number of people that have this globally is a very small number. It's less than a million people globally. It's actually the, um, the the the, uh, the most common of the non-Hodgkin's um, blood cancers, but yeah, it's still classed as a as a rare disease, one that had been underfunded, and so that's why we set up the foundation. And you know, a shameless plug here, but if there are people 
that have you know that are interested in going on a journey to help um, you know to cure a cancer we absolutely believe that we should be able to cure this cancer the doctors and the scientists believe that too there just hasn't been enough focus and so I'm unbelievably proud that in um, in December we awarded our first um, follicular lymphoma cure award grants to four kind of leading um, practitioners in the field where we gave them half a million dollars each and Fantastic. we're unbelievably excited to see the progress that they're going And that's make. the objective, right? You create the foundation so that money can be channeled towards research of that specific cancer. That's how the, the game, so to speak, yes. works. Funding research, but also bringing together everything that we've learned from, you know, a data and technology side to create the first, if you like, database and registry of follicular lymphoma patients. One of the things that's really hard uh, if you've got a rare cancer is getting enough patients to be able to do clinical trials or to do research with. And so that's one of the, uh, the ambitions that, we, uh, that we're trying to, c to create with, with the Follicular Lymphoma Foundation. And all of it's on our website at theflf.org. Fantastic. And you are still 120% full on. I remember going to Athens last April for the World Federation of Advertisers annual, and I looked to my left and there you are. You pop up everywhere. You're on planes. You're on trains. You're in automobiles. You're on ships. You're 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 out there. Energy seems great. You seem like you're doing fantastic. Thank you. I feel well. I'm energized by the job that I have. You know, I I love meeting with advertisers. I love meeting with our team. I think you've got to be on the ground. I think you've got to hear what's on people's minds. You've got to look in the eye. You've got to feel it. You feel something different when you're with people and you connect in a different way. So, yeah, I'm, I'm raring to go. No difference than I've ever been. Fantastic. All right, so let's start to wrap. I have one New York question that we'll hold for the end, but talk about the year ahead in 2023. Your company does as good a job as anyone I know in really gathering their best brains internally and planning and coming up with a real strategic approach to the business and growing the business. Give us a, a look inside the crystal ball on, you know, what you think 2023 is going to look like. And if we were in your office and if there was one of those smart boards and there were a couple things written as high priorities for the year ahead, what would they be? Yeah, so I think I think it's a really interesting moment. Um, I brought together a, we do the Global Client Council where we bring together some of our largest um, partners from around the world and I asked them this question and the one of the quotes that I loved was that the only certainty going into next year is uncertainty multiple people are planning different scenarios in terms of thinking through what it's going to look like and there's a lot that we can't control a lot that we don't know uh, in terms of what's going on from a macroeconomic perspective in terms of when I look at and think about matter I feel very excited for next year I feel excited because of the deep focus that we have in terms of the product and the business coming together as tightly as they are, more so than they've ever been before, in the incredible suite of new products that we have that we some of we we've only just started to learn. I mean, I mentioned that Advantage Shopping product; it's only been around since September. That's not very long at all. So we're seeing extraordinary ramp up on that. We're seeing ramp up on reels. We're seeing ramp up on business messaging, and you're seeing as you know, really listening to the needs of advertisers. So as we go into next year. I feel and I know because advertisers are saying to us that we're the very, very best place to help them get the return on investment that they need when it comes to their ad dollars. So that's the thing that gets me out of bed every day. And that's the thing that energizes me. Fantastic. And it sounds like the investments that you've been making 
in development of these products, the stuff that we don't see that's in the garage, so to speak, that it seems like a lot of those investments and the products that we're going to see a lot of them as consumers, as users, and of course, opportunities for brands and advertisers. Yeah, that's right. You know, these things take time. And we've been talking about some of the changes we've been making for the last 18 months or so. So, you know, especially around the areas of, of privacy, we've been talking about that we want to do more with less data going forwards. And that's where the AI comes in. And yeah, you're starting to see the, the beginnings of those products coming out, which are performing extremely well in the market. Fantastically exciting. Okay, so let's wrap and talk about your new hometown. You've been here for a while now. Uh, you're settling in. Talk about that move for you and for your family to New York. Yeah, so it's quite a strange one because it's, um, we moved last November and right in the heart of COVID. So New York was pretty quiet a year ago, right? And, it, you know, people were not on the streets. People, were, if they were, they were wearing masks. You, you, all the restaurants had spaces, albeit outside in those little kind of fairy hut things that were on all the streets. So it wasn't the kind of welcome to New York that, that we thought it was going to be. It feels very different a year on. Now you can't get a restaurant for love nor money. Now you've right. got to know the right person to get in. The streets are bustling. The tourists are around. And we feel very welcomed um, into, into the community here. And I'm excited about, you know, 23 and the year ahead because I think it's filled with so many opportunities, both from a business perspective, but also from a personal perspective as well. Fantastic. Well, Nicola, thank you so much for doing this. An absolute joy to get a chance to sit down and catch up. This is, if nothing else, doing these Great Minds episodes is a wonderful excuse to catch up with someone uh, in detail. And uh, I've enjoyed our conversation immensely. We uh, love our partnership with your team at Meta. It's near and dear uh, to us uh, all around the world. People like Alvin and Julie and Julie's team, which we think is just best in class. Um, and we look forward to continuing to go and grow with you. Uh, I marvel at the growth going back to those early days when it was just a little office up above a storefront in Palo Alto. And the last time pre-COVID, I would always go out and I guess I'll go out and see Marnie at some point. Uh, I used to go out and see David Fisher and have a lunch or a dinner, you know, pre-Christmas. And the last time I went, when I went to what, I guess it was the old Sun Microsystems campus that's now your office out in California, I absolutely marveled at uh, the growth. And it's an amazing story. Uh, the book is still very much being written. And uh, we're thrilled to uh, ride shotgun with you anywhere in the world and, uh, and work with you and your team at Meta. So thanks so much for doing this. Oh, my Lord, thank you for having me in here today and also for the, for the extraordinary partnership over the last decade and here's to the decade to come. As a marketer, you know it's crucial to spend your budget wisely. Mountain's self-serve connected TV marketing software helps you do that with data-backed insights that take the guesswork out of measuring your ad's impact. With Mountain, you can track your connected TV ad performance in real time and see how it compares to your other channels with leading web analytics integrations. You can even see who's visiting your website or making purchases after watching an ad, regardless of what household device they used. Visit Mountain.com to learn more.